Welcome everybody to the Good Data Podcast. Today is episode six of our Green Series. Anyone new to the Green Data Center Series podcast, welcome. To give you a brief overview, uh, we started with software and how well-written software is actually a green initiative, um, contrary to, I think, what a lot of people think. Then we uh, went to server hardware and electrical systems. Then last week, we took a weird interlude to kind of wax philosophical <laughs> regarding why anybody should care about green. Uh, now we're looking at an extremely important and often overlooked aspect of green data centers, automation. Uh, we're going to talk about how data centers are built and commissioned, how PUE gets metered and the problems with that, how building automation works and how that ties into data centers. And finally, what's on the horizon to make data centers run more efficiently just by improving automation. Let's go. This week almost wasn't a standalone episode because Automation sometimes just feels like a footnote in data centers. It's always the last piece of the data center that's built, and it's almost always just an annoyance uh, that's never optimized over time. Uh, at least that's true in like the enterprise case. When it comes to purpose-built cloud data centers and often colo data centers, automation seems like it's, it's really poured over and every possible savings is run out. Uh, not always in Colo, but some Colos are doing a fantastic job of that. But man, enterprise data centers and uh, the majority of small to mid-range colocation providers that I have seen really don't have the capability or the desire to optimize automation. And the question is why? And I think the answer is because it's really hard. Automation is... Um, it's built on pre-established software and methods, and <laughs> they're not necessarily built specifically for a given data center. They're not optimized for a given data center. And it's pretty difficult to properly engineer the automation system for the implementation. Uh, when you start to look behind the curtain at the programming, it's got these decision trees and PID loops and if they start to really optimize things, those decision trees become incredibly complicated. It's like you're, you're looking at, okay, what is the enthalpy of dry air in this data center envelope? And then, okay, if it's above X, then let's turn on this fan. If it's below X, then uh, let's turn on a humidifier. And... If it's within X, all right, go to the next decision. Should we be in cooling or not cooling? So there's there's these kind of built-up decision trees that happen within that, and they work together. If you start turning on a humidifier, uh, let's say it's an ultrasonic humidifier, that might actually decrease the temperature in the data center because of adiabatic cooling. So nothing happens within a vacuum 
And yet all those PID loops don't really talk to each other. It's just one starts after another sequentially a lot of the time. That's not always the case, but it's sort of the way that most integrated building management systems are working. There are systems within, say, crack units or something that work differently. We'll get into that. But optimization is really hard. So <laughs> it's it's not like you or I or most people can just go into a building automation system and make the fundamental changes that will really make the system work better. Some of that is almost more art than science. You can change the variables within a PID loop to make it work better, to to ramp up at the right rate, but nobody ever does that because it's very, very complicated. And you're never sure if the given change that you make will work on all conditions. So it's just much probably better to play it safe. So when the building automation system is initially installed, it's not always tested. A lot of times building automation systems just test to make sure the points are working, but the actual behind the scenes, whether or not it's working optimally is never checked. If it is checked, it's tested during commissioning and not every data center is properly commissioned. Um, you can check that all the wires are landed properly. You can check that uh, every sensor is giving feedback that seems about right, but it's not like anybody actually puts a hairdryer to a sensor and makes sure it's working. You just kind of assume it is, and it almost definitely is. It's not like those sensors are uh, fail often, or if they do fail, they don't give wrong information so much as they just don't give information. So there are a lot of assumptions you can make about that that are probably correct. But if they are tested, if those BMS systems are tested, they're usually tested with load banks that are just pumping out heat. It's basically a giant toaster that pumps out heat at full load. So if you have a 500 kW UPS, you're testing that UPS at near 500 kW, 90% or so. So if you are going to be in that data center, but you're not going to have 500 kW of load in the data center, which is usually the case for an enterprise, then that testing that you're going to be doing isn't accurate to what's actually inside of your data center. So if the system is expanded, it's not likely that it's ever going to be properly commissioned. So let's say you start at 500 and you move to one megawatt, then usually if the data center is already populated, so you're not going to re-test everything because that would put your existing stuff in danger. So as data centers change, they actually get worse and worse and worse in general in terms of the optimization of their BMS systems. It's not always the case. It's definitely possible to improve things over time, but like we're saying, it's very difficult. And you might have noticed so far <laughs> that we're talking about BAS, building automation systems, and I've been talking almost exclusively about HVAC. So your airflow systems, your chill water loops, things like that. And that's because those are usually the things that require the most automation. 
you and especially in terms of green you know uh switch gear and things like that requires automation but that automation doesn't really have anything to do with the efficiency or the power usage of the systems it's just for reliability so since this is the green series we're just focusing on hvac and hvac is complicated <laughs> there's uh, especially you know you're talking about all the different systems that have to work together there's a back and forth between the chilled water system the air handler systems the condensed water systems and everything has to play nice together uh, everything in the system changes based on the total kw that is being put on that heat rejection and the airflow and you know the for instance take a chill water system the chill water system has uh, bypasses and pumps and heat exchangers for free cooling uh, there's there's all these different mechanisms that have to change off one valve closes another one opens and they have to do it in conjunction with the VFDs on the pumps and the VFDs on the pumps can scale up and net scale down and if there's a pump failure how you have to take that into account so it's really complicated to put one of these systems together and you know, then you have your cooling tower that has to work with your, you know, your condensed water system has to work with your chill water system. And it's hard enough just to get it working at all <laughs> to uh, get the the commutating valve that's on your bypass to work with the entire chill water system. It's hard enough just to do that and then to try and get that to work efficiently at any given amount of KW that you have is even harder. And the problem is that chilled water systems don't really scale well. You know, it's built for the maximum size. So let's say that you expect one day to grow into a megawatt, but you start at 100 KW, which happens. Or you used to be at 200 KW, now you're at 100 KW because you downsized. Well, that means that your whole system was sized for a megawatt because that's the maximum capacity in general. So at least your piping sizes and things like that have been sized for a megawatt. But the pumps, <laughs> you know, let's say there are uh, three pumps, those are meant to have a flow rate that is capable of one megawatt. But pumps only really scale down to 40%. You know, VFD only really scales down to 40%. So you're still using 40% of the energy or more than 40% of the energy despite the fact that you're only using one-tenth of the total power. So even then you might actually have to almost put a load bank on the chilled water system because you can sort short cycle your chillers if you have that little bit of load on. Or you know you can turn them off but you still need some chiller capacity so that there are ways around that there's chill water storage there's there's a lot of very keen tricks that people can do if they're aware of some of those limitations but those are difficult things and they're they're often costly and they're not designed in from the beginning so you know things like modular chillers um things like uh, optimizers they can all work but they are not always designed in and so these chill water systems when they're scaled down just aren't as efficient and bms can't fix that uh it just will not keep up 
uh, if it's not designed properly. So moving on from chill water, you also have your air system. So, you know, getting cooling to a, diff a given rack, uh, you know, the, the equipment racks in a data center require a certain amount of cubic feet per minute in order to reach the input, the inlet temperature that they need. So let's say that you have a rack that has 8kW worth of stuff in it. Well, you, you need somewhere, you know, you're going to need uh, 1,000, 2,000 CFM to cool that down. But how do you get that 1,000 to that one that has 8kW and not feed the net one next to it with that same 1,000? And, and it's hard to get that granularity in data center cooling. You know, in an office, we use variable air volume boxes so that you can change the amount of air volume that goes to a given spot in an office building. But a lot of times in data centers, you just have a constant value system that brings up air from the raised floor. And floor distribution just does not respond well to getting air to a given specific place. There are fans that you can put in the floor that, that work fine, but those are pretty expensive comparatively, um, and they're not that widely used. And you can also put little dampers in the floor, but same problem. They cost money, and you know how what is the cost-benefit of that? Now, when you have hot aisle containment, you don't really have to worry about it because the entire room, if it's if it's used correctly, the entire room becomes this sort of hot box or a cold box. So the pressure is even across the entire room. And as long as there's really not that much leakage across the data racks, that whole cold air volume is always available for every rack. So you don't have to worry about the CFM to a given spot as much. It's why hot out, it's one of the many, many reasons why hot out containment is very, very effective. There's also in row, uh, rear or rear door cooling that work really well because they're right at the right spot to get air right where it is and reject it right where it is. And so it can ramp up or ramp down based on the very specific, hyper-specific rack temperature nearby it. So it gets there to the right spot, it responds to nearby sensors, and it uh, gets the hot air immediately. So it's really easy to automate. Whereas a big crack unit, if you turn one off, that changes the whole underfloor, underfloor airflow system. But one of these little in-row or rear door units can just turn on and off and it doesn't affect anything else in the system. They're expensive though <laughs> and they're, they're harder to get in place where they need to be, but they're incredibly effective and efficient. Uh, but if you don't have that 8kW per rack requirement, then you're spending money on these rear doors and there's no real benefit to it. Like I was saying, the, the craze on the perimeter, if that's the type of cooling that is in a given space, 
they don't respond well to dynamic demand. They don't ramp up and ramp down based on this rack. <laughs> they, they can ramp up and ramp down based on the total return temperature that's in a space, but that's very inefficient because let's say one rack is basically off, but another one's putting out a lot of heat. Well, it might be that the return temperature is pretty low, so that one rack is just not getting the cooling that it needs. And this is actually getting worse. Historically, you know, a given server would not change a lot in KW if it was idle, but, you know, newer processors, they can shut down cores, and when they do that, they reduce their KW, and so the whole computer can actually take up, you know, a half as much or even sometimes less energy as it was when it was ramped up. This is getting even worse with supercomputers, which they have cores that are incredibly taxing KW-wise, but they can basically turn off because there's no operating system on it. It's just compute. And that makes the air volume even more variable. And that's why a lot of supercomputers have those rear doors or liquid cooling or whatever it is, because it can respond better to that change. And the fact is that perimeter cracks just can't keep up with that. It's just not a system that's optimized for that. And part of the reason for that is that the metering is in the wrong place. It's in the return of the crack unit. It's not at the server or rack that needs that. And even if it is at the server or rack that needs it, you can't easily adjust the crack unit to just get air to that one section. So this brings us to metering. You need to meter at the right spot. And the right spot ideally is the inlet of the server cabinet or <laughs> even more specifically is the actual processor of a given system. Processors can generally tolerate up to 80 degrees centigrade, which is like 160 degrees Fahrenheit. But that's really just a ha like one square inch of silicone. And so that whole server is in many ways just geared to cool down that square inch of silicone. There's so many other parts to it that just feed into that. I mean, the capacitors can probably get more heat than that. There, there's a lot of other pieces that have to get cooled as well. But the part that produces the most heat is generally that little slab of silicone. So I mentioned this before, but I want to get back into it. There's another opportunity here that I think goes unmentioned, which is that you can link your BMS system, your BAS system, into your computation. So servers these days have uh, control points that actually show what the server temperature is, the, the chip temperature is. And as I said before, the, the chip temperature can be 75 degrees centigrade. And that really should be the metric that we use for data center cooling. The I'd love to make that change in ASHRAE. I would love to make that the new standard for this kind of stuff, that instead of looking at the rack inlet temperature, we actually look at the point that matters, which is that chip and, and the power supply and the parts that actually do overheat. The front of a server doesn't overheat. It's the pieces in the back. It's the stuff that 
gets really hot. So by taking those SNMP points from the processor and from the motherboard and all the points that are actually being recorded and putting that into our BMS, that is such a possibility for even additional accuracy on the cooling in a data center. And that's not there yet, but I think we could get there pretty easily. The problem with a lot of this stuff, though, is that if you were to measure the temperature at the chip, you would have a lot more points to measure. Instead of measuring at the front of the rack and having one point, you would have up to 42 or more points in a given rack that you're measuring. And a lot of these BMS systems actually charge you by the point. That's how they do their billing process. So by increasing that number of points, you're spending a lot more money. So it's a tough call in a lot of ways, whether it's a good idea to increase that number of points because you might be paying out the nose. But at the same time, it's a better system. That's uh, all these constraints and trade-offs on how these things are run makes it very difficult. Now we have to take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Green Lane Design. Green Lane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, including major enterprise customers as well as co-location facilities. GLD has designed and developed an integrated stack of design disciplines. If you would be interested in a free assessment, go to greenlanedesign.com, click on contact, and mention the podcast. And we're back. So, you know, this brings us to PUE as well. You need to measure PUE at the right spot. Do you measure, uh, if, if you have a purpose-built data center, do you measure the office space that's included uh, to support the data center? Or do you just measure the systems that are directly associated with the generator, like the UPS, cooling, chill, cooling towers, and, and those types of things? And it gets even more granular than that. Should you meter before or after the tool weight volt transformer. <laughs> and that's why PUE is a not a great metric because let's say you have DC distribution. Well, that means that you have taken the power supplies of the servers and put it on the other side of the PUE metric. So then that can actually make your PUE look worse, even though the system as a whole is efficient or more efficient. So <laughs> PUE, I got a lot of problems with PUE. And then taking PUE, should that be used as a metric for how well your BAS is working? And should it be used as a way to optimize your BAS? That comes into part of the problem with using BAS to improve your efficiency of a data center. You can't easily use your PUE and say, oh, my PUE is getting better right now. I should keep doing this. You know, your, your smarts inside of your BAS system, you might be tempted to say, oh, let's just make the PUE better, better, better. But there's just too many factors for most BMS systems, BAS systems, to use that as a metric. The system is stochastic. It's random. It's hard to predict how an outside air economizer might affect a chiller. And what about in this type of 
weather situation versus that weather situation? What if it's raining? What if it's humid? How do you measure your improvements to BAS to make sure that whatever changes you're making are actually going to improve it, not just today, but every day? And then, you know, how do you uh, report on the metering? Um, Really, you should take the average of an entire year to figure out what your PUE is. So really, you're, you're measuring kWh, your kilowatt hours, the total amount of energy that you're using, not your kW, which is the amount of energy that you're using at any given moment. And then another piece is, are you using PUE as an incentive structure for your organization? Are you saying to your organization, hey, you're going to get a bigger bonus if you improve your PUE? Well, what then happens if, like we were saying, you reduce the number of servers in your building? Well, then your PUE is going to look worse, even though maybe your systems are, have been optimized as much as they can be. It's just that those pumps still have to run at 40% no matter what. You know, do you show your customers your PUE data? You can put that on your website if you want to. Do you want to do that? Do you want to publish that to your marketing materials? I don't know. It's because <laughs> that PUE can get better. Do you want to use the PUE that you measured during your your commissioning, which is, as we said, not a real PUE number because it's not actual server conditions. You can do that and then make it look as though you have fantastic PUE when really in actuality, day-to-day basis, your PUE is terrible. It's not that you're lying exactly. It's that you're showing numbers from something that was not real-world conditions. So this is one of the questions. How do you goose your numbers? There are a bunch of ways to manipulate PUE to make it look better than it is. So if you're a buyer who's going into a co-location market, you're going to hear a lot of crazy PUE numbers. You're going to hear some people say 1.1. Some people are going to say 1.6. Some people are going to say 1.8. And those numbers are often not reliable (laughs) because there's no set ideal place to measure that PUE number. So like if you're a buyer and you're worried about this kind of stuff, I'll be honest with you, do not trust PUE from anybody unless you look at a single line diagram and you look at the current PUE and you look at their BMS system and see behind the the curtains that the PUE is this. Otherwise, it's just not a real number. So here's another question. What happens in the future? So here we are, we're in a situation where it's hard to optimize the BAS system in a data center. How can we make it easier? So one of the first lines of attack these days is machine learning and AI because it's in vogue and because it works. Um, The great thing about machine learning is that unlike a person, it's working 24-7 and it has continuity, so it always is paying attention to what it always did. So instead of just having your 9-to-5 shift trying to optimize the 9 to 5 shift you have your 24/7 shift 
of the AI always trying to make it better. And they can continuously com improve. And there's a couple ways to do that. Um, and, you know, the older ways, which I don't think was really an option because for a couple of reasons, was just to use like a, an old school optimization methodology, like a um, stochastic modeling. So like uh, Monte Carlo, which is when you just add or subtract uh, from a random variable, like, oh, let's try uh, increasing the fan speed over here. Uh, oh, that didn't work. All right, let's try uh, decreasing the fan speed over on this other crack unit. Oh, that worked. All right, let's do that again. Um, and then you record the result, and you try and use that historical data to do the same thing again when it's required. But... <laughs> uh, that type of modeling when it's dumb can work in a lot of situations, but you got to watch out because it can make stupid decisions. It's like, oh, this really worked really well the other day, but then you realize that actually uh, it's way more humid today and that stochastic modeling didn't take that into account. So, or, or oh, we, we racked out a bunch of servers over here, so it's not getting the heat to where it needs, the cooling to where it needs to be. So it's actually really hard to make that type of modeling that old school modeling work correctly and you know you need to pick the right optimization values it can endanger stability like it can start to uh, make hot spots where they shouldn't be hot spots and it's just hard to program so we can improve that ai has gotten a lot better since then you can actually use these days newer ai techniques that are based on things like neural nets that um constantly get better over time and you know there, there are newer technologies like generative uh, neural nets that uh, can predict what is going to happen um, there are gen generative adversarial neural nets and modeling and these things are basically constantly improving <laughs> I brought it up in the last week's episode, but I want to bring it again. The AI that was made just recently called uh, This Person Does Not Exist. It's like thispersondoesnotexist.com. And it's these amazing portraits of AI-created people that aren't real. And those types of similar types of neural nets can be used to look at what your data center is running at right now. Uh, try some of these different types of uh, stochastic modeling, but with a more targeted methodology that's like, well, I actually know that in general, if I increase that fan speed, it's going to improve the airflow where I need it. That's much better than that just, you know, guess and check methodology that is usually there. But it still has a lot of the same problems that AI can really be unpredictable. So you need to have a lot of safeguards in there. And there are companies that are doing this type of updating to the software. Um, Google many years ago moved to a model like this where they uh, instigated a, a machine learning algorithm in their data centers and they saw a substantial improvement in their PUE because of that. And the great thing about these neural net models is that they learn on their own in a way that 
doesn't necessarily require the same human oversight. So even an enterprise data center operator might be able to make this work without having to fine tune and, and poke at it and prod it and make sure that every variable is working the way it needs to. And they just get better with time and make better decisions with time and can really see big improvements day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year without the same investment of human capital as having three shifts staring at this screen day after day after day. Those people could probably be doing much more important things like making sure that everything is actually working, going into maintenance and, you know, listening for belts that are slipping or things like that. It's much better to have those humans doing human things than doing robotic things. So I really think automation and optimization go hand in hand and there are so many opportunities for savings and especially for being green because there's no additional systems that need to be put in place to make automation better. It's just making the software better. It's not like you have to add um, some kind of extra heat rejection or something like that. There's no added complexity to the actual the mechanical systems that are required. It's just making sure that those mechanical systems are working to their best. And the great thing about this is that there are new methods that are coming out every year, and those methods are going to improve at, I think, an astonishing rate, that as we get these uh, neural nets in there that are much better at taking data and optimizing it, we will start to see the efficiency of these systems grow and grow and grow in a way that will really affect the bottom line. But I just want to drive home the idea that you have to be careful because this stuff is software heavy. It is prone to problems. There is the opportunity to really make some kind of huge blunder, um, suddenly you know, sucking in a boatload of snow uh, because it got blown against a fan. And, and a normal BMS system probably wouldn't do that, but maybe an AI type would or, or some strange freak occurrence that would be possibly more likely under an AI scenario than would be likely under a normal BAS system. Not to say that doesn't happen on a BAS system, but you just got to be careful because you never know. And that really is what data centers come down to is just always be careful <laughs> that as much as green is important, that uptime is more important. So make sure that the software you're using is vetted. And my general personal preference is to go with second or third generation software, not first. That's our show. I'd like to thank Greenlane Design for sponsoring this episode. And I'd like to thank Juke Deck for providing our music. AI generated. Pretty cool. I really appreciate everybody who's listening. You can find me on Twitter at data underscore good. And
and on LinkedIn. Just search my name. And we'll talk to you next time on the podcast.